Fame and Netflix don't define me. In my head, I was that businesswoman who would shatter all the ceilings. I have never allowed uh, myself to be labeled. If I am defeated, it is because I chose to be defeated. Our today's guest on Naked was born in India. She was named number one on Business Insider's list of 100 coolest people in food and drink. And she's the first British chef and restaurant owner to appear on the famous Netflix show Chef's Table. Welcome by many known Asma Khan. We talked together about how does fame impact one's self-identity as an entrepreneur. And also how do you cope with all that additional pressure that comes with it. It became quite clear in our conversation that defeat is never an option for her. If I'm defeated, it is because I choose to be defeated. Her path to becoming a celebrated chef persona was not at all clear and narrow. Although being one, actually Asma doesn't see herself as an entrepreneur because she never allowed herself to be labeled by anyone. She finds it limiting. Asma is a woman who has built her business in the face of adversity lack of wider family support, has felt loneliness, but has actually pushed through largely with the support of a very close network of other women, which we also talk about together. So enjoy Asma's story and her absolute openness and ability to talk about uncomfortable feelings and experiences with such lightness of a fresh air. Enjoy. This is Naked by the Future Farm where entrepreneurship is stripped to its vulnerable core. Brought to you by Vladi meshko Brestinska and Nectarius Liolius. And remember, subscribe, follow and rate Naked to help share it with the world. Did you have that moment where at some point you realize you're no longer the lawyer asthma, you're the business builder asthma? I did. I did. Because, you know, very much like you, you know, I, th- I think it's this kind of imposter syndrome. Uh, you kind of uh, are in it and you think, you know, I, oh, my God, I don't want to be this, uh, you know. And also, I think that uh, saying it loud to yourself that I am an entrepreneur kind of burdens you with with all the kind of things that you think are, are associated with being an entrepreneur, which is success, money, fame. Vlad had mentioned, you know, uh, being Bill Gates, uh, you know, you're suddenly expecting to do something incredible because you then uh, put a label on yourself, uh, which comes with a huge amount of baggage. And the thing is that, you know, I have never allowed uh, myself to be labeled by, by anyone. And I never labeled myself. And I've often said this, that, you know, uh, especially in this country, I've been now here for almost 30 years. They, you know, don't, I will call myself an immigrant, a Muslim, a mother, an older woman. I'll call myself anything I want. That's what I am that day. Don't put labels on me because there's no box big enough that'll fit me because I'm, you don't put me in a box. So, you know, for me, I, I don't think that, you know, I, to call myself an entrepreneur would have been completely catastrophic for me because I have never, ever called myself anything uh, because I, I have always fought against, you know, being bracketed into something because that has, I've always seen that is where you live the rest of your life. I've seen my mother, my sister, my cousins, 
all of them bracketed the pretty one, the dumb one, the clever one, uh, the dark one, the fat one, uh, the thin one. And, you know, in, when you come from a large family, this is very much from the moment you're born, you are labeled as something. And uh, I was as well labeled uh, as something from birth. So, yeah, I, I, I still don't call myself an entrepreneur. I know I am one. I know I'm a business person. I know I made a huge, you know, if anyone who's traveled to the subcontinent uh, and, you know, you're in these crazy trains packed with people, you look at a path where the train tracks are splitting, you know, you know, you're, you're suddenly you find your train, you know, moving to another path. I felt that movement when I went to see, you know, my restaurant in Kingley Court. And I looked at it and I thought, I want it. It's going to be really hard to get it because I have no money. I have zero experience. I don't even have a credit card. So they go check my credit history and find zero. Even my mobile phone contract was on my husband's account because, you know, why would I get it? I wouldn't have got a phone contract, uh, you know, years ago. And uh, I still had a student account, bank account. So, yeah, great things to go in and say, give me this prime uh, West, you know, West End property. You know, this is my student account. Uh, do you have a credit card? No. But, you know, so I, I went in there completely convinced that I was going to get it. In my head, I had got it. In my head, I was that businesswoman who would shatter all the ceilings for someone who looked like me, who spoke like me, accented, Muslim, immigrant, older person, never done business before, no credit card with a student account. I was going to get that lease. And when they told me 55 people had applied for that lease, I still felt I was going to get it. But I still didn't call myself an entrepreneur. No. So the thing is that not being put in the box worked out to me my greatest strength. The fact that I didn't fit in. I didn't fit in with the kind of family I had. But I had the most awesome parents who were not bothered. My mother was like, you know, just let her be. You know, don't get after her. Let her be, let her be. You know, she's not, she's, she's not, you know, going to do this. She's not going to do that. And my mother also didn't force me to dress up and, you know, uh, conform to what was expected in my family, you know, in this kind of very traditional clothes and, you know, jewelry and things like that. So when I see all my childhood pictures, my sister dressed as a fairy, me looking like something, some dog has pulled out of the bushes. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I value her for having the, at that time, having two daughters, a second daughter, who looked pretty straggly and was not, you know, how everybody else in the family looked. It was okay. So now when people ask me, you know, that how does it feel to be the only female restauranter, female Indian restauranter in a male-dominated world, you know, you are any unusual. I've been there, done it. From childhood. Yeah. And is it, is it acceptance we can talk about? I mean, I'm just thinking back, like, because you were, you mentioned a lot the word accepted. And I'm just, I was trying to figure out whether the true unconditional acceptance is there. And if so, when on that journey did you feel like, yeah, I got it, regardless of any choice I make in life? I'm not sure. And maybe I haven't reached that point yet. Uh, it's, I've never ever set myself these 
landmarks that I had to hit. Because for me, um, I, I, I was very young and my uh, father read this beautiful poem by a very difficult poet to understand in Urdu. And my Urdu is not good enough, which is my great uh, you know, sadness. But roughly it translates that, you know, it's a, it's a flight of a falcon in an open desert. And the person is telling the falcon, you know, it's a great flight, but you have no idea. There are skies above that you haven't seen. Go fly above that, above what is, you know, your accepted flight path for this. This is a, a, a desert, you know, and they fly in the desert and it's, you know, it, quite impressive. It, you'll see them in Pakistan as well. You know, mm-hmm. the falcon, the falcon yeah. in Pakistan. I was about to ask if it's Rumi, but might not be. No, no, it's not. No. It's, it's, it's Iqbal. It's Iqbal. Well, Pakistani. Uh, yeah. Point. Uh, but this whole thing that there are, there are skies that you don't see, mm. but you fly. And my father used to always tell me this, that, you know, go above that sky. The sky doesn't end where you think it does. There is another sky above that. And, you know, when you grow up listening to stuff like this and you're told, So I never set myself a, a, a target because I know there's another sky above that, which I need to conquer. And I would. So I just keep moving forward. I don't set myself any target. I don't call myself an entrepreneur. I don't call myself anything. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still finding the next sky. It's, it's interesting what you're saying about avoiding the labels. But I will stick with the labels for the ease of the conversation because most of the people who build a business and build a successful business and people who have actually uh, kind of created a voice for themselves but also for a community they represent, um, they've done this because ultimately they didn't want to leave this world at the end without having left a mark. Yeah. Right? So there is something which you see in a lot of the people who are, have been driving a business, an idea, whatever it is, and they manage to actually, or not manage, but people who actually come to that point where there is no longer a line between a personal life and a professional life. It's always driven by some sort of chip on their shoulder, right? I've always struggled to articulate that chip on my shoulder to my folks uh, because they're a very conventional Greek family and they struggled. I was a golden boy, uh, but then when I came out as gay to them, it was like the whole world fell apart. Yeah, yeah. So suddenly I gave the golden boy a, a spin, but I, I could practically kind of pick myself up again when I was telling about my, my professional success, which was understandable in the corporate world. The moment I decided I'm no longer going to be corporate, I'm doing my own thing, they just couldn't understand it until they saw me on television. Mm. And suddenly it was a trade-off, right? Yeah. But for me, it also meant that in my low moments when I was struggling with my entrepreneurial journey, um, I did not have family to rely on. I couldn't go to them and say, guys, I'm really struggling at the moment because I felt that for them, I needed to deliver yeah. what they needed, which was a successful child. Um, and I'm trying to kind of sort of also draw in a little bit from from... Your, your Netflix movie, uh, and but also how I got to know you. Um, how's that working in your situation? Because on the one side, you're this very confident, very successful, very kind of, well, you're a celebrity, right? 
episodes within your world. I mean, everybody knows asthma, right? Um, and to, thanks to Netflix, everybody knows asthma and everybody makes it difficult for me to get a table at Darjeeling Express, but that's a different story. Um, uh, how, how do you do this? Uh, do you have moments where you feel, I can't talk about this to my parents. I can talk about everything, but at the same time, I am their kind of success story. So if I show some weakness, they will not be able to help me or they will not want to hear it. Well, I, I think I'm very lucky. I think that my, my parents are very open uh, to this communication. Uh, often I would choose not to talk to them so that they would not worry. But they never, my mother would sense from, the, from my voice often that I was struggling. And it, is, it was a deliberate decision not to communicate with my, with my parents. I'm very, very close to my siblings and who are very, very chilled out, non-judgmental people. Uh, and, you know, my cheerleaders, very... Uh, proud of me, but understand that you know I I hit a lot of hurdles along my way. It's not always been smooth sailing, and when I hit a hurdle, I you know would often talk to them, get a lot of strength of them. But I also have uh, been fortunate to have a very close network of women who you know friends. You know we have a common friend who's one of them. Uh, who I've met relatively late, but who has helped me enormously. But in every stage of my life, I have always had someone like Vincy. I've always had someone who is not from my culture, not from my background, who I did not have to explain who I was, but who took, this is our situation right now. Oh my God, we're in huge hell. We've got to find a way out. You know, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. So the thing is that it actually was a lot easier. So I, I have always been able to find a support system. I never made friends with people so that they would later on be able to support me. It's just worked out that way. Also, I have personally been a, someone who a lot of Asian women come to, to talk. And, you know, and also have a very big network of young Asian you know, boys who have issues with sexuality. One of the big things we did, which was when I, before I opened my restaurant, was to have a Bollywood dance party with all my women, you know, all of traditional thing, with a very large Asian gay, uh, you know, party. And there, there were all these boys who were embracing all my, you know, chefs, saying, you know, we've never been able to do this. And you allowed us to celebrate and we all danced together. It was crazy. And uh, I, you know, I was the, a bit worried about, you know, how, every, in, you know, more traditional, more kind of less, uh, you know, I mean, less liberal minded uh, women who work with me, how they would deal with when I came and told them that we were going to do the first gay iftar. This was after the, the shooting. Uh, and I did this with, uh, with someone who asked me, and they were like, oh, no, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. So they also realized that for me, I had become that wall on which so many other people came and leant against. 
in this way, I also learned how to be able to pick up when I was suffering. I didn't mask it. I didn't hide it. I picked up my own signals so quickly because I met so many people, many of them having issues with sexuality, with acceptance, with their faith, you know, how their family sees it, how they see it, uh, with lots of issues. And I've always, since I moved to this country, became this kind of almost mother figure to so many people. And I think that I recognize within myself and I am, I'm not doing so well. I'm a bit stuck. I pick it up much faster because I've seen so many people going through this and not picking up these signals themselves. And I think that I am very good at understanding myself. And I was able to, to find people who I could communicate with, often who came first to me with their problems. And so the, the gate had opened of communication. So I have always ended up you know, leaning on people, asking for their advice, getting their support, because I did it first. I was a person they often came to because they were suffering. And then when I was in trouble, I think I'm just being very lucky that I've always found someone exactly who I thought would understand because I knew that they'd been through something similar. So it's always been this that my family, my mother and father have always left at the very end in case it really was a bad situation. Otherwise, it's always been my siblings. And then a lot of these are friends, but they're friends who I was a anchor for in some ways. And when I was drifting, I went to them and it worked out beautifully. You are listening to Naked by the Future Farm, where entrepreneurship is stripped to its vulnerable core. Hey, I loved in the movie, you mentioned actually, you called your chefs, your sisters. Yeah. And when I, when I heard that the picture I had in my mind was exactly from the, you know, in the tech world, we use these like co-founders and, you know, this family, which found the business together. And I thought about your story and I was thinking, yeah, these are your co-founders indeed. Yeah. And I was thinking about the strengths of the bond and yeah, anything to share about that, like how the importance of that for you? Yeah, the thing is that, you know, uh, I mean, in Pakistan, you won't see it so much, but in India, we are a very divided society. We're divided by wealth, by caste, by religion. Uh, the women who, who I call my sisters, who are the, the backbone of Darjeeling Express, to whom this, this whole enterprise actually belongs, uh, were people who I would never have even met. I may have seen them in the railway station when I went to pick up my random relatives, but I wouldn't have even talked to them. I would have had no reason to speak to them unless they worked as servants in my house. There's a huge class difference. There's a huge gap in education. Some of the women never, unfortunately, went to school. Uh, you know, have, you know, one of them speaks English with a pepper, pepper pig accent. Because when she was a nanny, she learned to speak English, watching <laughs> Peppa Pig. And I was like, whoa, you sound like Peppa Pig. But yeah, she learned to speak mm. English. She was taught by a four-year-old. Mm. When she was her nanny, she learned to speak. She speaks, you know, like Peppa Pig. Uh, yeah, we all forgive her for that. But uh, it's, uh, 
So all of, we would never have sat down and had a meal together. We would never have even met. We wouldn't have gone to the same cafes, the restaurants. We may have met on the street and made eye contact. But the way we met in my house in London, you know, there was, at that point, we were all equal. And for them, this was a unique experience. I mean, they all stood and were not willing to sit on my dining table with me. And I said, you sit first, and I sit. And they all did. Because that gesture, because I was seen as, they all know I'm royalty. Uh, you know, they all knew my family background. But I, they, you know, the culture is you don't sit till the person who's more important sits down. I mean, it's, a, it's you know, I, I think in Greek culture as well, you know, till if you if you're, you get up the moment an adult walks into the room, yeah. because, you know, you must give your seat to them. Even if there are enough chairs, you do get up. If your grandfather walks in, you get up. You don't keep sitting. I mean, that's at least in, you know, traditional Indian culture. Uh, so they all came very much from there. So when in that one first meeting, the barriers came down because I made that clear to them that they were equal to me. And I felt so excited that they had come to my house and, you know, breaking bread with them. Again, you know, many Indians would not eat with each other because of caste. I'm Muslim. None of them are Muslims. They're all Hindus. Some of them are vegetarians, quite strict. Uh, yet they were happy to, you know, eat from my kitchen, from my pan, from my plate. Uh, these are things that don't happen. And I think when you start like that, a journey, which began with friendship and embracing each other, the sisterhood grew from that moment where I told them this house is always for you. And soon they would be coming here at two o'clock. The school pickup is at 3.30, one and a half hours early. We were in the area. I said, yeah, come up. We'll have tea. You know, we'll have tea and we'll eat samosas and chat. And that, because I think they realized that, you know, I was very lonely as well. I was very lonely and I understood in their eyes that emptiness of belonging nowhere. I had been through that journey myself. So I was still in that state. I'd had, you know, my children. Uh, and the irony of it is I still felt uh, bereft in some ways because I wasn't with my own mother and my father and family. And so this kind of grieving for something that you cannot get they also were grieving, but they actually didn't have their family with them. So many of them really kind of were happy to meet my children. None of these women have family. All their family, the husbands, parents, children, are back home. It's a typical immigrant story. And, but I understood grief. I understood yearning for home. And they could sit here and weep, you know, because... They didn't have to hide it. They didn't have to be brave. And they could say how unhappy they were because they couldn't say it to their family who would be panicked that, oh my God, she's coming back, you know, who's going, you know, because what they earn here supported 15, 20 people back there. So when you couldn't say that I can't take it and I cannot breathe, and I could say it to them how I felt. I felt I wasn't living. I felt I was drifting. And I could say it to them. They no longer had to pretend. It was liberating. 
It was liberating. Yeah. That is what really got us together. And then the supper clubs, the business, the restaurant, Netflix, the fame, the fortune, all of that is came else later on. Mm. The real kind of bonding happened over my dining table, sitting and drinking tea, listening to music that our parents used to listen to. <laughs> uh, on you know, and it was really nice because we're not all the same age, but we all heard the same music, uh, and which our parents loved, liked a lot, and it was just an enjoyment, a a oneness. And it was music was a big role. Food was the other. So over, over food and music and stories, we 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 formed a bond that is so strong that you know it's it's unshakable. I you know cannot see anyone leaving me, and I will never leave them. Is it maybe okay to put a slightly different lens to the word family? Because I remember in in the movie you talk about you're doing the supper club, it's going really well, you're having a lot of fun with it, and suddenly your family, your children, tells yeah. you, "Mom, please stop doing that." Um, so it's quite one thing to kind of go back and look at the support you get from your roots, and it's another one to look at the people that are surrounding you on a day to day. How was that? Um, because you only touch upon very briefly. Um, are your, your kids and, and your husband, uh, how do they feel about asthma now? I'm not so sure about my husband. I'm not so foolish to ask him what he feels. He refused to be in Netflix, despite Netflix begging him, pleading, crying and weeping, this entire 16 people in my house, asking him just like two minutes, please. He refused. He refused to talk to them. As you know, as you've seen, he's not in the film. Uh, my husband always told me uh, that I would, uh, that he appreciated my intelligence, my politics, my compassion to help other women, and felt that I would never achieve any of that through food. That as a lawyer and as someone who actually did really well in law school, uh, did a PhD, which was very well, you know, uh, was appreciated uh, with the opportunity to teach and to do research uh, in an area which has not got people who look like me, who are like me. Uh, he felt that it would be, I, I could do a lot of interesting stuff on immigration, on uh, rights. So he was right, looking at me, that this was something. And there was no Asma Khan then. I'd never seen a person using food for politics who used a business to create a, a conversation about rights. And I'd never seen anything like this. So I couldn't even tell him, I want to be like her. I want to follow her footsteps. There was nobody who was like me. So I would just listen to him saying, you know, look at the food world. Where are you going to go? Who's going to give you money? What's going to, you know, yeah, all of that makes sense. So it was very, very dismissive, uh, telling me I would just fail uh, because this was not the world where I belonged. And I could stay as a lawyer 
where there were other people doing stuff, interesting stuff, and I would find my path. And he himself is an academic, so you know, I know, you know, there are friends. You know, I I know what an academic's life is. He's a professor in economics, but the thing is that he never ever thought uh, I was going to make it. Never thought I I my food was good enough. He doesn't like my food at all. So he's someone who actually has no. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't eat 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 my food. He's never enjoyed it, and uh, so it was a very. Uh, so from him, there was a lot of hostility. Uh, and this is why I, did good, I had to lie about the supper clubs. Not lie, didn't lie, didn't tell him. So he didn't know. He didn't know. House was so clean after he came back. It was a favor. I was doing a favor for him. He was cleaning the house a lot. The fact that someone, 40 people came and messed it up and left, he didn't need to know. And I never told my children, don't tell Baba. They never told him. I have incredible boys. They never told him. They just kept silent. And I never said anything to him that, you know something, while you were away, mama did this big party. No, mm. never, ever. And I never told them, don't lie. But I think it became too much. Uh, the kids were putting up signs outside their door saying no entry uh, because a lot of people trying to find the bathroom would walk into their rooms. Uh, they were shoved to one end of the house. And it wasn't that, you know, if I had a supper club on a Saturday and Sunday, from Friday, the confusion would start. From Thursday, the chaos would start. And the whole weekend would go away. Their weekend was wiped away. They couldn't even come out. There were tables everywhere. There were chairs. They were shooed out of the kitchen. Uh, you know, the whole kitchen was full of people uh, cooking and cleaning and washing up. I think they felt they, they, they didn't have a life, you know, on a weekend. When their father was not there, they were just in their rooms, locked up. Uh, and when I realized, I felt very guilty because... I actually had not realized that they were suffering so much because they never said anything to me except for the no entry signs that came up towards the last few supper clubs, which I thought was, you know, how odd that my kids are putting up these signs, but didn't really understand. And I was so ashamed that I had uh, not picked up because for me, my, I always saw the trouble. See, you'll focus on the person you think is the biggest trouble. For me, my biggest trouble was my husband. He was the person who, if he found out, would be, apart from everything, I was very angry that I was lying. And also uh, because I knew he would not approve. And in focusing on how he, how he would react and making sure he, he didn't find out, I kind of just ignored the kids in this whole process. And I, uh, it was very, it was very uh, humbling to know that, you know, they, I have children who, for a long time, put my happiness above their own till it got too much. And they were scared that they could see how happy it made me. And they were very upset when I started saying, fine, I'm going to stop. Because they said, like, you know, is there any other way you can do it somewhere else so that, you know, everyone, so we can just come out to the kitchen? So it was very, uh, they were very uh, understanding, not aggressive very emotional when I told them, no, I will stop. I said, no, I will stop. And they was like, you know, no, 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 don't, don't, don't. Because what are you going to do then? And I was like, no, I'll find a way. I'll find a way. I apologize. And I'm really sorry. And I, and all the girls were also very apologetic to the kids. They all got lots of Kit Kats. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they, they, we all said sorry to them. And that we very, uh, you know, we had not realized. <laughs> 
that we are actually oppressing them. And all of us who have been through oppression uh, as children in our families growing up, as girls, it felt really bad. It felt really bad that we had behaved in a patriarchal way. We had we were being like the patriarchs who didn't even ask our opinions when we were girls in families because we didn't count. And I had not asked my children, is it okay? Are you all okay? Never asked them. Because I had a great time and I thought they would be fine. They were not fine, but I never asked them. I realized that, you know, we had become, I was telling all the women, you know, we are behaving like, you know, the men in our families, which is awful because nothing can be worse than that, you know, being patriarchal. And I think it gave all of us a real shock. Uh, we, we felt all of us were really bad. I mean, I was, of course, you know, the most hurt. And I got then huge shouting from my parents who were very angry with me for having, you know, not taken care of the kids. Then it became, then the story ended completely. Uh, so, yeah, it was not nice. Thank you for sharing. There's a lot of learning for all of us. And, um, yeah, I'm thinking that when we go on that journey, you know, following the dreams and the passion, I think we, in one way or the other, sometimes we just lose track and we get blinded by it and we embrace and immerse fully. Um, but this ability for you to reflect and for your kids to actually kick your ass in a way and say, like, yeah. mama... Uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's a very strong message and, and such a learning, right, for, for, for you and for us now when you were sharing it. Has it changed in any way now when Asma has her own restaurant, there is a place they can come in? How, how that has impacted the relationship? I mean, the thing is that it's worth mentioning that, you know, I, I, my uh, investor uh, who was going to invest in the restaurant uh, pulled out, not pulled out, changed the terms of agreement the night before, uh, where suddenly he became co-owner of the restaurant. Uh, at that time, of course, you know, the restaurant was a huge risk. You know, I may have failed, I may have succeeded. For the amount of money that he was giving me, I hung up, I sat on the floor uh, just behind where this computer is, and I wept. I cried for, I think, an hour. I was just so overwhelmed that some man was using money to chain me. I have broken every chain. And I've always fought to break the chains of others. And here, because he was giving me this money for my restaurant, I was, uh, I was going to be put into a cage. And I wept a lot. And my husband passed me and was like, you know, oh, wow, so interesting. You're this great warrior, great princess, and you're crying. And, you know, I've, you know, I've never seen you cry. And so, you know, obviously, I've never cried in front of him because that's below me. I will not cry in front of anyone. I will cry, but I will cry alone. And I was like, you know, I was just weeping. I was just heartbroken because I realized that this investor is an asshole, but if I don't have the money tomorrow, I can't exchange. And, you know, what will I say to the landlord that, you know, because the money from the bank had been organized, but that was based on me being able to deposit this investor's money first, then the bank's money would come in, and then I would pay the landlord a small portion of the money. And I called all my friends who are rich, who are not that rich, because maximum I could get was 800 quid from someone. I can give you 800 quid tomorrow. I said, what the, you have like an expensive car. Where's your bloody money? 
They was like, you know, it's invested. Do you think? I had no idea. Rich people really don't have money in their accounts. You think everyone who's rich has lots of money? No one had money. I was like, I'm just horrified. I'll never think you're rich again. No one had money. I mean, this was like the biggest, largest amount was 800 quid, which was what? I needed 185,000. Mm. And my husband then came to me and said, I have given you my life savings. 185,000 pounds will hit your account. And it was really strange. I got up and shook his hand. Uh, and I, and he left. And I tried to impress him by washing all his clothes. So he didn't change his mind. And he watched me wash all his clothes. You know, he'd be telling me for a long time to wash his clothes. I even separated the whites. I ironed everything. When I finished all his clothes, he told me, because I kept checking on my phone, the money. It didn't come, you know, on, the, on my app, phone app. There was no money. So I thought he just told me and went away. I was too scared to go and ask him, did you change your mind? I told the kids, your father's giving you all his money. They were saying, oh, wow, this is great. This is so exciting. I said, everyone stay away from him. You know, let's not make any noise because he can change his mind. And then when I finished ironing all his clothes, he told me, it's okay. I have no more clothes for you to wash or iron. Just want to tell you because I didn't know. I had a student account that nobody had given me any money before this, that it won't come, won't show till the next morning. Because that's how it works. Now I know that after, if you pay the money after a certain time at night, it doesn't come. My husband knew. He watched me wash all his clothes. And I was like, I sat and cried again. He told me, like, you're so stupid. You know, you now know the money is gone. He showed me on his account, the money went. He said, it's gone to you. And I didn't, Netflix wanted to ask him why he invested in me after having criticized me always. Now if anyone invests in me, it's so easy. I'm successful. Mm -hmm. At that time, I was nobody. I had nothing. So he told me, I'm not going to talk to Netflix because they're going to ask me why I invested in you that night when you sat there crying. I don't want to answer this question. My attitude to Netflix was, you guys are going to mess up my life. I am not going to force him to talk to you guys because I'd much rather have my husband's money than him telling me I'm smart, I'm beautiful, I'm successful. I don't care. I want his money. I'd rather have his money. I take his money and I ran. I don't want to do a post-mortem on his, why did you give me the money? Do you really think I'm successful? Do you think I'm an entrepreneur? We don't talk about it. Hmm. We still don't talk about it. Three years down the line, uh, he sees me in the Financial Times and this, that, the other. So when, I, when I, my name comes out in really big publications, I just had something in GQ. Uh, you know, I, I sent it to the New York Times. So I just sent it to him saying, isn't this very cool? No response. He never responds to anything I sent him. It's all fine. He gave me the money. I don't care. You are listening to Naked by The Future Farm, where entrepreneurship is stripped to its vulnerable core. The children's attitude towards the restaurant, uh, one, it's interesting because I realize now that his whole life, he'd be practicing for social distancing. He doesn't want to be near people. He doesn't like people. He's like my husband. My husband likes students. He doesn't like people. My younger child also doesn't like people. Hopefully, he, when he does something in his life, he will like the people he likes working with. But he's very much like my husband. It's amazing how someone can be born like that. Mm. But, you know, and all my kind of being surrounded by people, this child avoids us all. Uh, so, yeah, he's a social distancing kid. And, but now we know how uh, we have a label for him. Although I wouldn't put the label on him. But, yeah, he's... <laughs> He's that 
So he is, has come to the restaurant once, once, complete, once he came with my parents because they told him he had to come. Uh, my younger, older one is, thinks I'm great, brings his friends, thinks I'm, you know, I noticed one thing that every post I put up uh, on social media, he's one of the first persons who likes it. Uh, he will also tell me when I made spelling mistakes. <laughs> he checks everything I do. He's extremely proud. Uh, he told me, don't come to my university because I don't want everyone to see, see who you are because A, they'll think that, you know, they'll steal my food because they'll know that you're cooking it. And also, I don't want you to be... But I had to go because there was a crisis and there was something. So I had to go to his rest, to his... And when I walked into his hall, I saw the way everyone looked at me and I thought, they all know who I am. So one of them came and said, oh, no, oh you know, Aris, my son, called everyone to his room and showed them the Netflix in his room. That this is my mother. So I said, okay, so he's proud of me. And, but he was like, don't come, don't come because I'm too ashamed. Uh, you, know, you know how it is. But my younger one is, 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 is not at all... I mean, he's in fact horrified. I'm, I'm someone that someone can see on TV. I wasn't allowed to go to parent-teacher meeting because his English teacher told him that she thought I was very inspirational. He was like, I am so embarrassed. She saw you on TV. You can't come for parent-teacher meeting. So I didn't go. My husband went. So it's very different reaction. One child is very proud of me, uh, very excited, shows off to everyone, uh, wants to bring friends to the restaurant, uh, and is... I think something, someone who would like to continue and take over my business. The girls teasingly always call him Chota Malik, which in my culture is the young, young lord, young owner, or the new owner. Uh, so yeah, he, he's called that. But they all like him a lot because he always washed pots. After the, he helped them, he used to help washing pots. And when I had issues in the restaurant, he came to clean the floors and things like that. I think there has a lot of respect for him from the, from the team because they know that he's someone who has actually physically contributed to helping us when we were, you know, early days and everything. So he's kind of been very much part of the journey, but uh, the, the other two are people who just look from outside. They're not heckling, but they're looking. That's it. Um, it's, thank you. It's, it's, it's wonderful to, to listen to your story, but also you talk about these things with such a candor and about a lot of things other people would never share in public. So it's really, um, it's just amazing to hear the story. Um, there's, in, in our kind of conversations we've had so far, we realize that um, people sometimes don't have the vocabulary to identify what's going on. And you very articulately kind of present how you actually have an awareness because of your own experience. And you seem to be creating your own networks yeah for for resources but are there moments where you just sit there in your room and maybe not on your kitchen floor um and you go i don't know what's going on but this isn't good and and you draw to something else to give you that strength to bounce back from it um pe people have different tools uh, we had a wonderful conversation i know that long ago about about uh, hallucinogenic drugs. Uh, we had conversations about all sorts of things. I'm just curious to know, in your case, what, what are the resources other than your networks, other than the people that you go to that help you regain that strength and solve a conflict or overcome a problem? My faith. I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm deeply spiritual. I, I read a lot of Rumi. I, I listen to poetry uh, on, on, you know, my father reading poetry. My father reading... Uh, 
poetry uh, of this, uh, my father reading Rumi, but my father also reading a lot of uh, things that I grew up listening to uh, at home, you know, so Urdu poetry, poetry. Uh, my father reading uh, very poetical verses from the Quran. You know, the Quran is, is a very poetic book. Most people don't understand that. There's a lot of poetry there, which is very beautiful. I've always seen it as a book of poetry. And, you know, and so I, I listen to that. Uh, I also listen to a lot of music. Uh, again, Sufi music, very spiritual music, uh, uh, very rhythmic. Uh, so these are kind of music that you hear in the shrines in Pakistan and India, mm. where people, there's a rhythmic clapping. There's a clapping and there's a beat. And in that beat, there's a healing that you get from listening to that rhythm. That rhythm is always very uplifting. You know, it's Kavali, and I play it in my restaurant towards the end of my uh, service. I'm always amazed at the number of people who tell me, what is that? It's doing something to me over here in my heart. I said, yeah, this is the call of my soil, the beat, my heartbeat. That's what you're hearing. That rhythm of Islam, of, of Sufi Islam. So the Islam of my childhood, the rhythm of Sufi Islam, which goes from Central Asia into India to the Turkey, that links all these people who can then spin and lose yeah. complete uh, you know, awareness of what is around them. That gives me strength. I don't spin, but I am in some ways. I listen to that music and that kind of moves me and takes me to a place where, you know, there is, there is a word that Rumi used, which is nothingness. I am taken to that, that, that point of nothingness where I am nothing. Then any problems I have is a problem which I solve. So I, I listen to this music, uh, I listen to poetry, and I, and I also write a lot of poetry recently. I've been writing a lot of poetry. I'm too embarrassed to make it public, but I write a lot of very spiritual uh, things uh, in different languages. Sometimes in the same poem, I switch between English and Urdu and Arabic because I'm all of that. I'm all of that. But there's a rhythm, which is that rhythm of Sufi Islam. And that is where my strength comes from. And this is why I say this with complete conviction. If I am defeated, it is because I chose to be defeated. I will never be defeated by someone else because I have the tools. I have the beat that will take me to another place. And I will pull myself out of every hole, every difficult position I'm in. Because this is, this is how I have won every battle. I visualize myself winning every time. For me, defeat is never an option. But I use music and poetry to get there. Mm. Sometimes <laughs> we have these conversations and we're trying to figure out how do we introduce the end? How do we start wrapping up? <laughs> but that's where you just literally, I mean, in all this conversation, you've just been delivering every yeah, single piece by yourself. You didn't need us for any of, of this. It, it's been, I th what I'm trying to say is actually this, this was a beautiful thing to end on. I mean, the way you kind of describe not just kind of the meditative approach to, to looking at recovery, 
right? Yeah. And and strength. It's uh, I I'm bloody. I don't know what you think. No, I think, I, I I'm that... thinking actually very clearly. I'm gonna play some Sufi music right after this one. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that, that's what on my plan. Um, Asma, we have this one question we uh, we ask every of our yeah. interviews yeah. at the end, yeah. which is around. Was there a question or now if you think back when yeah. you were starting on your journey, do you think that would be a question if you could ask at that time of to another entrepreneur, you wish that you could have asked that? What would it be? No. There Because is no such question. I had no questions. Mm. I had no questions at that time because uh, I, I knew what was happening. I was never confused. I was never alone. So, you know, you ask questions when you, but I was always mm. surrounded by uh, a support system. Uh, the questions never came up. So I don't know. I, I, the answer, truth, I mean, if I think a lot, I'm, they may have been stuff something, but my instinct was that there was, I never had any confusion about, you know, anything that I couldn't understand, except I should say anything to do with tech. <laughs> I still, I can't, I, when I got my new phone, I had to take it to a friend to put the SIM card in and activate my phone. I didn't know how to do backup on iCloud. So these are the only thing that has hampered me in my life. And once I've, I figure that out, I will be invincible. No, but that's Fair the enough. only thing. Uh, but yeah, so no. There is one more, which is around, we try to find out if you think that there are topics which we talk very little about publicly. And if so, which are those? I think the topic that is really important to discuss is the the mindset of so many women, the the insecurities that women have about failure, the fact that you do not have enough women, you cannot be what you cannot see, and I think it's really important that you know, uh, like what you guys are doing, that you actually bring on people who are diverse, accented, uh, you know, where it is very clear. They're from two cultures, the East and the West. You know, you give people that hook that, you know, she's, she may understand and let me listen to what she says. You know, it's very important that voices come on the table who are different because I think that this is going to be very, very important that, you know, this changes the way that, uh, you know, others look at, at a particular industry. And I think that's, that's a very significant thing that there isn't enough diversity Uh, you see too many people who look the same doing, this, doing something. Yeah. You don't feel you belong. It's very much more very about. Yeah, and it was a lot more. Sorry, it was a wider conversation than just the entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately it's about why are we doing this? Yeah, I was I was mesmerized really by the lightness by which she was actually telling us about who she is and the life she's living and the choices, how she's making it. Um, it's inspiring for me, certainly. Um, yeah, that's the piece I'm still kind of, you know, and I guess it will take me some time to absorb and reflect on. Um, I think it's interesting to talk to somebody who's has got their own way of phrasing things and articulating things. Um, But ultimately, going back to some of the key concepts that uh, we've seen, right? Um, you can call it faith, you can call it poetry, you can call it a state of nothingness through Sufi music. 
But ultimately, it's a, it's a form of meditation, right? It's a form of introspection and calmness, right? Which is what every every mindfulness app you can yeah, download yeah. today is ultimately trying to achieve. It's just a different path to that, right? Uh, in the same way that when, when as I was talking about at the beginning, about the different networks uh, that she has to tap into when she needs a particular type of support, right? But really eye-opening for me to go. And the reason I knew how to do this is because I've been doing this for other people. So mm-hmm. also that element of self-reflection and being able to say, look, this is our function. And then and I'm sure it comes with age, sure it comes with having your own family. Uh, but that awareness that we sometimes kind of realize that some of our other guests didn't have. Yeah. So she went so like smoothly from being absolutely vulnerable to a moment of like absolute trust into who she is, which is so beautiful to see, right? Like this contrast. And and for me, there was a lot. It, it stood up as a maturity. And, and some of it, what you were saying around reflection, the ability to know yourself and not to kind of reflect too much on asthma, but I think another concept which for me was really powerful which came out from this conversation was around the acceptance the unconditional mm-hmm. acceptance and i think a lot of us and not just entrepreneurs but now speaking about entrepreneurs when we decide to go on our journey which we believe is or we tailor it to who we are right and it's just not accepted a lot of time by the closest ones where we actually seek that unconditional acceptance and love and i think that's a big one to um kind of find a way around it and and work through it maybe find and and build another family unit while maybe still reconciling with what do i have in my roots right that was powerful for me this concept of sisterhood right and how she really talks about the chefs as the sisters and i was like i was watching and i was like yeah that's the co-founders concept right and how interesting it is because now we have such a variety of founders and entrepreneurs on the podcast and they talk about the same thing but with different words Mm. and I was just like thinking about it that yeah indeed there are a lot of different bits but actually the the past the journey of an entrepreneur has so much of commonality regardless whether you are tech in Silicon Valley or actually a restaurant owner you know what do Um, you think Yes and no. I, I agree with the statement. The one thing I realize is, though, mm. that most of the people we've had on the podcast actually didn't really have that. Not in the same way. I mean, mean, the family unit? No, not the family unit, just a bunch of co-founders. I mean, most of the people we've spoken to have had a relationship. A lot of the conversation we had was other people doing this by themselves, having co-founder conflicts. Yeah, that was craving for somebody like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we had the lack of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what we had. But we didn't really have a model of, I I found these people organically and we were ultimately united by the same interests. So we overcame our differences because of that kind of unifying dream. And now with this tight-knit group and, and different people are doing different things within the business. But it's the faces you see on the program and they all started by kind of, yeah, having one interest, which was one shared experience, which was 
the loneliness. You're right in terms of reflecting on, you know, not just the stories in the podcast, but a lot of, you know, stories around us in the life. I guess it comes to really on what basis do you come together and decide to build this together, right? Is it the financial motive that pulls you in? Is it experience in terms of backgrounds and stuff? I, yeah, because it is true. Is that what I've heard there with Asma and the sisterhood? I did think about us as well in terms of that, you know, vulnerable experience we kind of have and shared, which brought us together. You've been listening to Naked by The Future Farm, where entrepreneurship is stripped to its vulnerable core. To learn more about our work, sign up to our newsletter or visit thefuturefarm.co, where you can also apply to be a Naked guest. Naked is produced by Dan Turgel, coordinating producer Alena Zamirava, and edited by Catherine Walker. And remember to subscribe, follow, and rate Naked to help us share it with the world.